G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. It is Australia Day 2022 and we're revisiting some of the highlights of an insightful conversation today about the presence of Christians in Australia since the arrival of the First Fleet in 1788. Well, not long ago, back in 2020, we had a a privilege of unpacking some highlights from the second book on Australia's evangelical Christian history with historian Professor Stuart Piggin. He'd earlier released his first volume that went on to win the Australian Christian Book of the Year Award. It was called The Fountain of Public Prosperity. Well, the second volume, called Attending to the National Soul, picked up from where the first book ended and extends the history from 1914 to 2014. Well, Professor Stuart Piggin was Director of the Centre for the History of Christian Thought and Experience at Macquarie University until 2016 and Head of the Department of Christian Thought of the Australian College of Theology. I started the conversation by asking Professor Piggin about the fact that evangelical Christian history starts back before the arrival of the First Fleet and into the English history of the revival times of the Great Awakening. Yes, I began that first volume in 1740, not in 1788, because uh, I do trace it back to the the Great Awakening. It had a direct impact on Australia uh, because of the people who were converted in the the Great Awakening. Uh, They were involved, actually, in, in, in setting up the First Fleet, of all things, and for doing it so well. By that time... Christians were determined to abolish the slave trade and they wanted to make sure that the settlement of Australia was nothing like that. So the First Fleet was actually an incredible maritime success and it was due to the intervention of those humanitarians who had uh, evangelical principles. Uh, and that's one thing which, which, we, which people who talk about the origins of Australia never seem to recognise. And um, one of the things which drove the writing, the research of this book, these books, I mean, it's 30 years research and writing here, it was driven by the omissions in the secular histories, the, the, the misinterpretations, I think, of so much of our history. When you put the Christianity back into it, it brings it to uh, a new understanding, which is, uh, which is very challenging, really. Um, and so right through the 19th century, I think it was a great age of evangelical Christianity. The churches were very strong in the 19th century and the evangelicals were involved in so many things. I think because they were, they, they, they were aware that they were a minority. They had to, to evangelise convicts, Aborigines, South Sea Islanders, settlers. They were, they were an outward-looking group. I think in the 20th century, when the Christians became stronger, they tended to be inward-looking more. And uh, so there's a big contrast between the two. And so the two volumes really, even though the 19th century and 20th century, they do form two different books because there are two different chapters in in the experience of, of Christianity in Australia, I think. 
Well, I have both volumes, and I'd encourage listeners to get a hold of those, and we'll tell you how you can shortly. You talk about a national consciousness and a national conscience. What do you mean when you talk about a national consciousness? Yes, I think that when people think about Christianity, they think about the ethical dimension, the moral dimension. They can easily understand how the Christian religion could have influenced the conscience. But I think actually more important than that is its, is its formation on our, con- our consciousness, the way that we actually think about things. Um, and uh, uh, Christianity in Australia bears the... Well, Australia, Australians, full stop, bear the imprint of Christ. They bear the imprint of the gospel. The gospel has made uh, a great impact on the way uh, people, people think. For example, in the recent bushfires, we are incredibly aware of the suffering of people. We're very keen to help them. And Christ's example of suffering on the cross gives us the grace to identify with the sufferings of others. Or Christ's resurrection unleashes in the world the possibility of the renewal of all things, which is something we look forward to after these devastating bushfires. Or the responsibility to care for all, the possibility for the reform and renewal of all things. Now, integral to the Australian psyche, the Australian soul. It's who we are. We've been indelibly impacted by, by the Christian faith. It becomes, it, it becomes clearer when you contrast the Australian psyche with what the, what the human psyche was like in pre-Christian days. So I've been in the Ancient History Department from Macquarie University, and you can see the contrast between Greco-Roman society and their values and the new values of uh, humility and uh, charity and uh, uh, grace and these sorts of things which come from the Christian uh, perspective. It's, it's, it's a sort of change of, it's a change of the soul. It, it forms the soul in a different way. Well. We Australians, we've been, we've been dramatically uh, formed by the, the Christian uh, message, the Christian gospel, the imprint of Christ. Well, I did say we'd catch some treasures in insights this hour. Here's one of those. When we bear the imprint of Christ, the direction of history and of development changes. And you're indicating that. And I guess when you talk about your second volume, you're seeing what the foundation has produced. We've got the roots that have been put down there in the 18th, 19th century. And then in the 20th century, Stuart, you've got what has come from those roots that is now taking shape as the nation of who we are today. And, of course, that includes the church today. And, and of course, these are big, big discussions. But, but what are your thoughts for those foundations that have produced who we are as a nation? Yes. One of the persons who has had an enormous impact on this book is uh, Professor Edwin Judge at Macquarie University. And he spoke about the... The, the task of the historian being to uh, to address the public opening up, he says, of the word of Christ to the world. The public opening up of the word of Christ to the world. And we had that phrase in mind when we wrote the second volume. We thought this is what we need to this is what we need to address. We need to talk about uh, the things which uh, which tells the truth about Christ's influence on Australia's social and cultural history those things have been missed out. So when you do open up the word of Christ publicly, we're talking about, we're not talking about internal church life here, we're talking about public Christianity, its impact on, on, on all Australians. And when you do that, 
you there are the three great themes which which emerge in the book. So there's the disentanglement of the kingdom of God from the United Kingdom, uh, because uh, you know that historians love to today to talk about colonialism all the time and and the, the dreadful destruction wrought by colonialism. And people identify colonialism with Christianity because Christianity was so involved with the missionary movement. And there seemed to be this this overlap between the two. Well, in, in the 1960s, as any of us who were alive then remember, when the when England took itself into the European economic community before it took itself out again with Brexit, we were distressed with how they seemed to turn their back on us so readily. <laughs> and indeed, the, the British Empire, it, it just it was no longer an issue for us. It just fell through the somebody said the trapdoor of history, and Christians, for the most part, weren't too distressed by it. There were some still today who would much prefer us to remain a monarchy rather than a republic, but it's not something that all Christians necessarily commit themselves to. Uh, and in the process of disentangling those two things, we, we've we got a new understanding, a new emphasis on what the kingdom of God means in the world today. You know, if the kingdom of God is a reality in the world, what does it mean for the way we live with each other? Then there's the public opening up of the word of Christ to uh, to Australians in the face of secularism's success in marginalising faith. Uh, there's a, a desire to sort of keep Christians out of the conversation. Um, if you do that, then the public ethic, I think, will be greatly diminished. Mm. Stuart, it's just a personal credo. It's got to be a public credo as well. Let's turn our attention to this last hundred years, and of course, there's so much to talk about. But we'll try and uh, we'll try and identify some key points uh, for listeners today to be able to focus on where they might really appreciate the role of Christians uh, over this past hundred years in the way that our nation has developed to who we are. Let's go back to wartime because our involvement in wars, First World War, Second World War, Korean War, Vietnam War, let's talk about those sorts of wars and Christians and their involvement. You've spent some time there unpacking just the significance of what it is that shaped our involvement in those wars. How do you describe that for listeners, Stuart? Well, um, the the book, as you've said, was co-authored and uh, the other author is Professor... Bob Linder from the United States, and Bob wrote those chapters on on the Australian soldiers in uh, the First and Second World Wars in Korea and in Vietnam. He gives very vivid accounts of Christian soldiers in action, uh, and he was a soldier himself uh, involved in the Vietnam War, and uh, so he brings a particular insight to all of this. And there's a lot to say because, as you know, historians have written a lot about war and uh, they have, in this area, left the Christianity out as they've left it out of everything else. And there's a sort of a stereo, romantic, American stereotype of soldiers in the First World War, um, which is only half right. The other half is that a lot of, a lot of soldiers, Bob thinks 50%, were devout Christians, mm. Protestant and Catholic including Aboriginal soldiers who enlisted to serve God and country. And uh, he has gone into this in so much depth that he's come up with all sorts of treasures and insights that you wouldn't, which you, you wouldn't normally expect to find. For example, those who are most giving of their sons to the God of battle, those who are most prepared to sacrifice were Methodists, more Methodists, uh, young people, 
readily gave themselves to fight for the for the uh, for the nation. But the Methodists were also the ones who were most questioning of war. The Methodists were the ones who were most inclined to pacifism. So you see, they were they were they were most passionate about duty, and they were most passionate about dissent. And that's that's true of of what evangelical Christianity brings to our nation. It, it brings this passionate concern about all options. It doesn't necessarily say you've got to be a pacifist, but it will encourage people to explore that 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 commitment passionately. Or it doesn't say that you've got to sacrifice yourself, but it will certainly encourage people to think about those things. It's it's involved with, with both those things. And so attending to the souls of Australians in those extremities. In this part of the conversation, I began by asking Professor Piggin how influential Christians have been in the long-standing challenge of Aboriginal reconciliation, including an important story of Mary Bennett, a missionary to outback Aborigines. I started with that story because I wanted to focus on uh, on this issue of the, the, the problem of reconciliation with our Aboriginal brothers and sisters. I think this is the most challenging uh, issue when it comes to the Australian character, the Australian soul. We have to we have to solve this problem, and I think that the Christian faith. Uh, gives us the resources for that. And I tried to show in the book by many stories uh, of the, uh, the the contribution of missionaries, um, in particular in the first part of the 20th century and others in the second part uh, who have contributed to... They've contributed their voice to this whole issue of uh, reconciliation. Mary Bennett was a very powerful character, um, and I actually claimed at the beginning of the book that she was the most determined and outspoken of all these uh, critics of the uh, typical white attitude to Aboriginal people. But that's really saying something because determination and outspokenness are prominent characteristics of evangelical missionaries. It's an extremely challenging role because most Aboriginal people were demoralised and most whites were not sympathetic and Christian missionaries were a bridge between the two and she seems to have been without fear. She had a passion for justice. She loved Aboriginal people. She came from a strong Christian family. Her grandfather was a Church of Scotland minister. And her father was a pastoralist in Queensland who knew his Bible well. And he worked well with the Aboriginal people who lived on his same on their same station. And and the moral of she wrote the biography of her father and the moral of the book was why can't we have everybody living like this pastoralist and Aborigine sharing the land together? It's a wonderful example. Anyway, she chose to live out her vocation through a very conservative Christian mission, United Mission at Mount Margaret in Western Australia, which was led by two missionaries, uh, Rudolph and Micey Schenk, who were also very outspoken and determined. And they they influenced R.M. Williams, the bootmaker. He wept 60 years later when Micey wrote to him and said, Come on, R.M., as she always called him, huh. back to the faith, back to the faith. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, yeah, you know, so when we talk was, about missionaries, and I've reflected in a number of conversations over the years, how when there was a determination in some places around Australia to even exterminate uh, the Indigenous people, it was the church in there uh, with their mission efforts that became a sanctuary for Indigenous people. And so you've got government forming policy, you've got missionaries like Mary Bennett 
then there's the church and their role in how all of these things begin to develop a compassion, a possibility for reconciliation. How do we all live together in this one land? So what are your thoughts about the role of government policies and uh, Aboriginal Australians and the churches in the mix there? Uh, Big questions, dear brother. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I think when you look back at the history, it is interesting to see that we tried, we tried one thing, then you try another, then you try another. So when the whole thing started off, remember that Philip was instructed to uh, to treat the, Europe, the, the Aboriginal people uh, in every respect like Europeans, he said. And, uh, and yet no white person was punished by law for killing Aborigines, any Aborigines until 1838, by which time all sorts of terrible things had happened. And there were those, in other words... They started off by trying to integrate with the Aboriginal people. And if you look at a book like The Colony by, by Carskins, it's, they've, there are lots of stories of, of successful integration. We could go into that, but that's the first book. Then they tried separation because the two weren't getting on too well together. They thought if, it, if you've got the, the Aborigines separated from the white evil influence, then they'd have a chance. They tried that for a while. That didn't work. Then they tried protection. Protection was strong because uh, the evangelicals believed strongly in in having protectorates. Uh, this was this arose from the abolition of the slave trade. Then they tried separate development. Then they tried assimilation. Then they tried self-determination in, with Whitlam and all that sort of thing. And the replacement of Christian missions by government-controlled communities, the homeland movement, back to the country, and all that sort of stuff. These were essentially uneconomic communities and they haven't done particularly well. So this is a huge challenge. I mean... I, I, I remember going to Groot Island in the late 70s and I'd just come out of India and I suffered incredible culture shock because that was the first place I'd ever left outside of Australia. Just, India was so different. But Aboriginal people were far more different from Indians. They are just so... Their culture is so distinct that it has taken us all this time to begin to understand them and they've possibly they've taken time to understand us as well. So I think this is one of the reasons why... We've had this problem. I think another reason why we've had this problem is that we have we have an effective view of civilization. I think that the, if you say to me, what is the big mistake that the missionaries and Christians made about in all of this? I don't think for a moment they, they questioned that they had a superior civilization. And, and yet when I went to university 50 years ago, we were taught that to have a civilization, you had to have writing. You couldn't have a, a civilization without writing. That's, that's, well, that was, that's what a civilization was. So all of us believe that Aboriginal people weren't civilised until relatively recently. So you can't blame these people, I don't think, for having these rather sad, uh, destructive destructive views. But if you were to ask me, uh, Neil, when it's all said and done, um, on balance, and that's what history should do, on balance, were the churches a positive or a negative force in the Aboriginal experience? Um, a historian at Macquarie University, David Bolland, some time ago, wrote that Christian humanitarianism inspired the little that was benign in the dealings of governments and settlers with Aborigines. There's no doubt that that, that Christians did too little in this area. Uh, but what was benign in the dealings uh, was uh, due to Christian humanitarians. The great authority on this is, is Reynolds. Um, you know, books like this, Whispering in Our Hearts, and he lists all the humanitarians. And if you look at these humanitarians, they're almost without exception evangelical Christians. 
And he says there's just much to admire here, perhaps more than in the areas where they succeeded. And this is a great struggle they put up. They really put up a great fight on behalf of the Aboriginal people. And he says, with the humanitarian crusade woven into national history, and the story becomes richer somehow, more complex, and in many ways more decent and easier to justify. And the bloke who made a big impact on me, Bob Gould, who was a Marxist bookseller in, in, uh, in Sydney, he talks about the towering moral courage of the, uh, of the evangelical missionaries, the towering moral courage. And even more interesting, Robert Kennedy in his great, great book, The Lamb Enters the Dreaming, he made this incredibly perceptive point. He said, nobody who came out of an Enlightenment philosophy, a secular philosophy, not, he said, I could not find one person who came out of that background who believed that the Aboriginal people had a future. Mm-hmm. They all believed that they were dying out. He said, only those of dogged Christian faith believed that the Aborigines had a future and would not die out. I mean, these are all secular historians acknowledging this. Wow. Really, when you think about it. Stuart, it is sobering to hear you reflect that the Christians did not do enough. And we're talking not only, I guess, 20th century, but uh, through the 19th century as well. But to reflect on the positive influence that was there, and I know you like to use some words called Aboriginal uplift. And uh, there is a certain sense in which the missionary movement around the world uh, has been able to observe that where the missionary message comes into civilizations, there is an uplift by way of a nation prospering or a people prospering. That I think a missiologist, uh, Donald McGavran, I think he had a terminology called redemption and lift. And there is a certain yes. sense in which these sorts of things have an impression upon a people. Is that something that we ought to be working on today as a Christian church uh, in the way that we relate to our Indigenous brothers and sisters so that that can continue? Well, I did notice in one of Charles Wesley's hymns, he, he does write about Jesus who does lift us up. <laughs> so uplift is something that, that, that Jesus brings. But um, I, th- I think the, the moral of our story is that Aboriginal the re- reconciliation with Aboriginal people is 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 a work for the future. It certainly hasn't been achieved yet. We've had chronic failure, and the Christians have been involved in the failure. But it's essential to keep the Christian voice in there, because the Christian voice is, is the voice which talks about reconciliation. These are Christian words, and atonement, and forgiveness, and apology. These are all things which we need to keep to keep going. So it's terribly important I think, to keep the, the Christian voice in the conversation. Well, in this part of the conversation, I asked Professor Piggin about the history of revivals in Australia and the rise of Pentecostal Christianity. Yes, there's a, there's a lot about revival in the first volume. Um, it was one of the reasons why, why I was motivated to write the book, because I discovered a genuine revival in the Illawarra in 1902, and I was surprised by it because... This was, this was in the 80s, and I then believed that revival was an American thing that didn't happen in Australia. But when you start looking for revivals, you'll find them all over the place, especially local revivals. And so there's a lot about revival in the, in the first volume. And it ends, the first volume ends with, I hope, uh, a challenging uh, discussion of the possibility that the Welsh revival in Wales, 1904-05, may have originated in Australia. 
Wow. There are all sorts of reasons for it, which I give you in, that, in, in the book, which I'd be interested in getting reaction to. When you come to the when you come to the to the 20th century, I think the view is that uh, certainly this is true of, of England. Revivals were not so common as they were in the 19th century, but in Australia there were still remarkable things that happened. I mean, the the Gypsy Smith uh, mission in Australia in 1926. There were 80,000 decisions for Christ. There was a genuine revival in Cessnock in the, among the coal miners, coal miners in 1929. Alan Walker was involved in that. There was revival among Aboriginal people in the Atherton Tablelands. There was a church in... There's a, 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 a DVD that's been made of this, a church in Pinnacle Pocket, uh, uh, just near Atherton. It was formed by somebody who had experienced the Welsh revival. And in 1959, that church was taken over by Sterling Minicon, who was the father of Ray and Rodney Minicon, who have done so much for Aboriginal work among uh, Christian people in Australia, Ray among uh, Anglicans in Sydney, and Rodney, well, I asked him 20 years ago, I said, Rodney, have you ever been involved in a, in a, in a revival? <laughs> he just laughed and yep. he said, I've been, I've been involved in 30 revivals, brother. <laughs> so that is something which is fairly, fairly endemic. I mean, I was also intrigued that I think there was some evidence that you get revival even in prisoner of war camps. Now, this is something which people, historians, haven't written about much. But in that book, Miracle on the River Kwai, which is a great classic, um, I just read it again recently. It's a very deep book and written by Ernest Gordon. And uh, he, uh, he... he he apparently was not a man of faith at that time, but somebody said to him, look, we really ought to discuss the real things. And, this, and, and he, an Australian sergeant said to him, we really ought to talk about, have an honest discussion, he said, about the real dingo of faith in our present situation. And what they did was they developed this fellowship of freedom and love because they understood that Christ was with them, the comrade God who was on the cross, who was slain to rise again. This is the God that they needed in their, in their extremity. But it was just extraordinary what they achieved in that they, they, they had unleashed this fellowship uh, in the prison community, which included a university to satisfy the hunger for, for education and a library and a range of artistic and artisan initiatives and an orchestra and dramatic society and community singing. Uh, it was just incredible. And, and uh, practical things like a production line to make artificial limbs for, for amputees. And Jeff Bingham in South Australia, who was a prisoner of war, he had a similar experience. And when when the time ended, some of the soldiers said to him, We're distressed that we English people have to go back to England and we've never we've never known love like this and we don't think we'll ever know it know love like this again. Um, and I think that these people found it harder to be vital Christians outside of a context like that than they did inside that context. It's almost as if in times of extremity. And as you say, when the extremes hit, when the pressure is really on, uh, the power of grace seems to emerge when there is faith present. And uh, that's a powerful impact, as you say, not only in prisoner of war camps, but I suppose when revival does hit, and you've indicated those revivals that happened in the 19th century and they overflowed into the 20th century, and, and no doubt there were some extremes and there were some things that were happening. People were under pressure at the time. Is it a certain amount of pressure that's required as something that forms the foundation for what happens when revivals come? Because a lot of people are anticipating, Stuart, the idea of revival in Australia, a need for that now. Yes. 
I think that's a great question. There have been two, to my way of thinking, there have been two times in Australian history when we came near to a national awakening as distinct from local revivals. One was 1902. That was the end of a drought, a long, long drought, 10-year drought, a bit like the one we're experiencing now. And uh, I think that Australia was feeling, you know, there was also economic recession in the 1890s and that revival came at that time. And the other time, of course, was Billy Graham in 1959. Now, that was a time of great stability in Australia, but there was anxiety over the Cold War. I think a lot of people thought that with the invention of the atom bomb and the fact the Russians got it and all the rest of it, I think a lot of people thought at that time that the, that the clock was pretty close to midnight and there was a lot of anxiety at that time. Well, in Australia today, we have a similar thing. We have droughts and not dealing too well with climate change and, and we've got secularism not giving us anything. There's certainly a great need for the Lord at the moment. Look, only a couple of minutes remaining for our conversation and so much to talk about. But as we talk about those times in Australian history over the past hundred years, and you mention revival, early 20th century, 1902. Uh, you remember the uh, the Billy Graham Crusades, 1959, the times when we might be closest to national revival. But of course, there's been significant developments in church life since then. And the emergence of uh, the Pentecostal movement just to touch on this perhaps as we finish, because it can't go without mention that the Pentecostal movement has been flourishing in Australia over the past 50 years. And for some, it's been running under the radar, but it certainly has come to light now. What are your thoughts on the emergence of Pentecostalism in a nation like Australia? I think that a perspective of church historians, I think that the way to explain it is in terms of a reaction to the fact that Christianity became too, too mental, too intellectualised. It was too much mind and too little heart. It created a vacuum. Something had to fill that vacuum. And Pentecostalism did it with great success. There was actually a condemnation of Pentecostalism in some of the mainstream churches in the 1970s. So that was exactly the time when the Pentecostals said, look, the charismatic movement has arrived. We're going to embrace this. They hadn't been charismatic before that, believe it or not. It's an interesting discovery. But in 1977, they committed themselves to it. and They just took off like a rocket. And uh, it's obviously meeting a need. It is, it is interesting that Australians who have this reputation for being uh, amiable pagans without much spiritual dimension, that their times have been incredibly open to the spirit. And they're sometimes, and they've been very open to the, the Pentecostal movement. There was a healing mission in Australia in the 1920s with one John Moore Hickson, uh, which arose probably from the sufferings of the, of the Second World War. But Australians were incredibly open to it. Thousands, tens of thousands came to hear him. And then, then there was Smith Wigglesworth and Amy Semple McPherson, who were the sort of proto-Pentecostals, people who came before the modern Pentecostal movement. Huge following in Australia. So when you have very successful leaders like Brian Houston and so on and Hillsong, who can put it all together, it's it's not surprising that uh, this this meets a need and uh, and uh, seems to make such an impact. Wonderful insights as we've been listening into a conversation with Australian historian Professor Stuart Piggin shortly after the release of his two volumes recording a huge dimension of Australia's history from an evangelical Christian perspective. The first book from 2018, The Fountain of Public Prosperity, Evangelical Christians in Australian History, 1740 to 1914, and the second volume, 
Attending to the National Soul, Evangelical Christians in Australian History 1914 to 2014. Both of those available at Christian bookstores and when you search online. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 